Hello, everybody, and welcome to Elmtown episode 23. Today, we're going to be talking about the evolution of an API with Matt Griffith, who I'll introduce in just a moment. But first, let's talk about our lovely sponsors. There's Day One, which is the company that I work for. It's a beautiful journaling and life archiving app for Mac, iOS, and guess what? No longer coming soon to Android, but we released Android this last week. So uh, the basic version is out. Don't expect to go and have all the same ver- same features that iOS has and give us a one-star review because you didn't find the features that you wanted to find in there because someone else already did that. But we'd love it if you did use it and did like it, what we have done so far, what we have spent the last year and a half-ish working hard on. And, uh, and if you liked it, we could really appreciate a review so there's that spot it's a sponsor sponsor spotlight but also me asking for uh, love from the community if you got it but next up is daily drip which makes keeping up to date on programming skills easy it's a training service to sign up for uh, that'll save you a ton of time by providing quality lessons and resources for you right off the bat some of the topics that daily drip covers include elixir crystal which is a pretty interesting new language. So that's cool that they're diving on the bandwagon there. React Native, Go, HTML, and of course, Elm. You can learn faster and more efficiently with Daily Drip and be a better developer. Every weekday, you'll get a short video about five minutes or so delivered to your inbox. So go sign up at dailydrip.com and use the coupon code ELMTOWN, all lowercase, all one word, ELMTOWN-2018 or the year 2018, so ELMTOWN2018, and you'll get a 14-day free trial, and we will get recognition from Daily Drip knowing that uh, people listen to ELMTOWN, which we hope you do. Thanks for listening. Last, oh, not last, second to last, but not second to least, is Futurist, which is a new breed of innovation consultancy with digital values at its core. They believe in happy people, happy customers, and happy users. They're users of Elm, community contributors, and innovators in the open source space. They hire good people, and they do good work. They're always on the lookout for excellent people to hire, and they've got some pretty awesome policies, including the policy that allows their uh, employees to work outside of normal work hours on open source projects and get paid for that as well. Get some some level of compensation for that, which is really neat. Thank you to Futurist for supporting the podcast and for supporting the good open source work of the world. Last, here we go, last but not least, is Ellie, which is the Elm Live editor who provides hosting for this show. Uh, and Ellie has been released now in its newest form for a, for a bit, and it's really some fantastic engineering Luke has Luke, who's the creator of that, has put a lot of work and effort into actually making the Elm compiler run in the browser. And LA is a place where you can go and try out examples. You can write small sketches of Elm apps that include usages of ports. Um, oh, it ports? I don't remember. Yeah, I think you can use ports. And also you can import libraries from the Elm package repo. Um, so it's really a fantastic tool and it's a great way to get uh, reproducible examples if you need help. If you need help on Slack, you can go to Ellie, write out something that you've been struggling with and say, hey, this is this is what I've got going on and I've got this compiler error or like, why is it giving me this thing I didn't expect to see and post it on Slack and people can go see what you're doing and they don't have to, it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. So that's a fantastic community contribution and that is a free resource. That's not something that you pay for at least at the t- this time, and as far as I've spoken with Luke, I don't think he's ever going to uh, try to get money out of it. Um, so really, that's a huge... We're very grateful to Luke for for doing that for us. And uh, yeah, so that's the end of our sponsors. 
Big thank you to Fergus Meeklejohn for editing the show and producing. Uh, he doesn't want me to say his name anymore, but I'm just going to stick it to the man and say, sorry, Fergus, I'm going to recognize you anyway because I really appreciate what you do for us. And now comes to the section where I give some apologies for last week. I wanted to tell you all, you listeners, that I don't always, uh, I'm not often not totally prepared for the show. I haven't written out a script to read. And sometimes while I'm doing the introductions, I think of things that I want to throw in and I'm not well prepared for them. And last week I mentioned the Elmtown site redesign and I didn't have the names ready of those who participated in the redesign. And I thought, felt like that was pretty, pretty embarrassing. Um, so I'm better prepared this time. So I want to make an apology for not always being well prepared for these episodes. And I want to make, uh, I, I want to make a better effort in the future to be better prepared, uh, for things like that. And so I'm going to make an apology and a gratitude statement to Design by Johnny, to David Nemo. I hope, I hope I pronounced that right. And I looked this one up. Aussie, I finally, I looked up how to pronounce your name finally, Aussie. So it's Aussie Hanhinen, I think. <laughs> oh no, I hope he's not cringing at home. Designed by Johnny, David Nemo, and Aussie Hanhinen for turning out the new Elmtown website, which is really beautiful. And that's just, um, that was volunteer work from them. They, they wanted to help out the community and the podcast. And so they offered that work for, for all of us as a gift. And it really turned out nice. So thank you to all of them. And now that I have humbled myself and given my apologies, let's turn over to the fantastic Matthew Griffith, who's here. Want to say hi, Matt? Hello. Hi. How are you doing, Matt? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm very well now. Now that I've gotten that off awesome. my chest, I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, yeah. So tell us, I know that there are some longtime listeners who have heard your voice many times on the show before, but for those who are just tuning in, why don't you give a, just a quick overview of who you are, why you're fantastic, and why you and I are talking today. Oh man, why I'm fantastic. Well, um, yeah, my name's Matthew Griffith, and um, I wrote two libraries for Elm, which uh, people are using, which I'm very excited about. The first was Elm Style Animation. Uh, basically I wanted to be able to do, you know, type safe animations and, you know, basically take, uh, kind of the animation libraries I was seeing in other languages and do something similar in Elm. Um, and then I also made style elements, which, um, I gave a talk on in Paris, uh, earlier this year, man, it seems, ah, it seems like a lot, a lot longer ago. Um, uh, and that is about, uh, you know, being able to do styling and layout, uh, without, needing to know CSS and HTML. So basically creating a new semantic model for um, thinking about your design. Um, yeah, and I, I guess that's why I'm awesome. I don't know. Like, <laughs> that's why you're, that's one of the reasons you're awesome. There are other reasons too, but we can go with those ones for now. So I, I, have, I have something to like, just total side note. Um, okay. I Googled Elmtown just because, like, while you're giving the introduction, there is an Elmtown, Texas. I'm not sure if you know that. <laughs> is there really? <laughs> there's, there's literally a place in Texas called Elmtown. Um, it's not called Elm, Texas. It's just no. It's, it's Elmtown, Texas. <laughs> like, oh boy. Anyway, we're in uh, trouble. I, I, feel, I felt like that was significant, so I had to mention it. Um, I'm just waiting for the cease and desist from Elmtown, Texas. I know, right? It's uh -oh. probably like three people there. Maybe not. Maybe it's big. <laughs> So, uh, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh man. Uh, Ooh, you know, so I work at Cornell tech and we get, uh, like Cornell university has like a really awesome dairy farm. So we get like 
crazy awesome uh like real ice cream right so um, any cornell ice cream ba- I, I think mm-hmm. that's where i'm gonna go for <laughs> okay. this time just because it's like fresh in my mind i had it yesterday it was really good that sounds wonderful i'll have to come visit sometime and have some cornell ice cream definitely so if you don't know Matt well enough by his flavor of ice cream and his projects, go back and listen to the other episodes because <laughs> Matt's a wonderful person. And today what we're going to talk about is the evolution of an API. And the reason I asked you on first, Matt, I think we're going to talk about this multiple times with other people, but this is a pretty important topic. I'm guessing that when you wrote these libraries that other people have been using, Elm Style Animation and Style Elements specifically, did you just like sit down and write out the perfect API the first time around, hit publish, and like oh, dust yeah, off totally. your hands? It took about twenty minutes. Both these libraries pretty trivial. Um, All right, show's <laughs> over, everybody. Go home. <laughs> uh, so, some kind of interesting fact, actually. Um, both of the libraries only got popular uh, after uh, version three. Interesting. Um, and it's not like it's not like I was continue like breaking the API and and I got to version three quickly. Um, so it, you mean it was like major a painful like major reconception, like uh, delete everything, like oh Oof. boy, like here we go again type um, type rewrites um, for different reasons. But I thought it was interesting that they both. They both took like three major goes at the problem, you know, three major attempts at the problem before it was something where it's like, okay, you know, people seem to be pretty um, happy with this. And style elements, I, I'm really viewing it. It's really going to be like version five. That will be the next like true. Like it's like where I feel like I really nailed the API and can um, say some stronger things about what it can do. Oh, very cool. Well, I want to, I want to actually talk about that question a little bit later. We'll touch on like, how do you know when it's time, but let's start with the, the conception stage. Like when you very first started writing these libraries, was this something where you were working on a project and a pattern emerged and you thought I'll extract this? Or did you have an idea and say, you know what, this could make a really cool library. I'll start it as a separate project. So it started with animation, right? Um, and I had a project that I've been, I was kind of working on. I wanted, I was really fascinated with the idea of, of kind of visualizing music. Um, and I really, I had, I had, this was kind of at the beginning of my Elm experience, actually. Um, I had tried some stuff out in React and, um, and that, that, you know, I was, you know, I had a, had a decent time, but, uh, on the back end, I had recently switched from Python to Haskell. And uh, I found that, you know, this kind of static typing and, and um, describing things in types uh, was just a really nice way to make sure a project could grow. Um, so I, I could grow to the size of the kind of the project I wanted uh, without uh, going crazy. Um, so on the front end, I was like, okay, well, I want that on the front end. And, you know, kind of surveyed what was out there and landed on Elm. Um, it was really, you know, uh, beginner friendly or, you know, uh, you know, I was familiar with the concepts, but, um, with, with like the functional programming, static typing, like Haskell-ish, um, like concepts. So that wasn't too much of a barrier, but it was just like very open and the community was very nice. So I'm like, okay, here we go. And doing Elm and I knew like, okay, yeah, this, this seems like a, like I'm, I forget the point where I was like, okay, I'm sold. I, I'm not sure what specific fact it was, but, um. 
but pretty quick, I'm like, okay, well, if I want to visualize like music, like music, <laughs> you know, kind of only exists over time. Right. Like, um, so I sort of need to animate stuff. Uh, and I was kind of like looking around and, uh, you know, there were some libraries around like easing, you know, uh, where you could describe some easing functions and that was cool. And, um, Max had an animation library, which was kind of like lower level as well. Um, which was Max pretty is cool, a guy, right? just in case people don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's a Elm, community contributor, Elm fellow. Yeah, contributor. He's made some cool stuff. Um, uh, he had to do with Elm Test, actually, I believe. And, and we have the a, random an episode with him too in the past. Oh, awesome! Very cool. Um, so I kind of decided I'm like, okay, well, I need I need kind of like higher level animations. I need to be able to um, you know schedule these animations. I need to be able to interrupt them. And, uh, and just kind of like, I need kind of the next level higher. So I don't know anything. I didn't know anything about animation when I started. Um, and it wasn't an emergent pattern that I had for sure. It was more like, I really need to be able to do animations or I I know I will need to be able to do animations. So I'm just going to take the time to, I'm going to basically decide that I'm interested enough in this subject to like pursue writing this in Elm. And I also saw that there was, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a gap in in the um, ecosystem. I'm like, okay, well, there's not, uh, there's not, you know, something equivalent to like React Motion or, you know, uh, what is it, GreenSock um, yeah, or, um, right. or you know, Velocity or whatever animation library you would think about in like other ecosystems. So I'm like, okay, well, I could be that guy who, um, that developer who, you know, made that. So I'm just going to do that. But you had never done animation at all before? Like you had never, you weren't familiar with interpolations or um, keyframing? Yeah, I mean, or... I think I'm, I was familiar with like easing functions, right? Okay. Um, so you provide a number and then it gives you another number and, you know, that makes your thing bounce. I was like, okay, that's cool. Um, okay. But I wasn't, you know, I, I know a lot more now than I did then. Okay. Um, so you didn't yeah. really know what you were getting yourself into is kind of Yeah, yeah, not saying. not not really. I mean, I'm super grateful for the journey um and where I am now as far as kind of understanding these concepts, but at the beginning it was it was just a decision like okay, I want this. Um and sort of that was combined with like oh, this also like doesn't really exist in the community. I think if something would have already existed um, I think Max's library was the only thing that was uh, kind of uh, prominent um, out there. And mine was definitely, it had a different design focus. Um, so I'm not sure what, what would have happened if there was already something that existed. Likely sure. I would have yeah. just used it. <laughs> but you started um, with the idea of contributing to the community and not just keeping this as a private tool for you. Yeah, I think from the very beginning it was like, yeah, this is this is going to be an an open source library that I'm going to use. Cool. Okay, so that's how it started out. And mm-hmm. then what was what did your first iteration look like? Man, uh that is a really good question. So there were a few different things that I learned and I think it wasn't until version 3 that I I feel like I I got right and those um the first lesson uh, I realize is, is, uh, so coming from Haskell. So in Haskell, you have, um, uh, an operator dollar sign, right. And dollar sign is, is like left arrow in, uh, in Elm. 
and or you left don't pizza, really, you, some do, people you do have right arrow, but it wasn't something that I um, knew about in Haskell. It didn't seem very common. And so the first thing that I do is make the entire, um, well, I was like, okay, well, you'd use functions to kind of compose this like animation. And so what you initially did is you actually sort of wrote this backwards pipeline okay. of how, and that's how you built your animation. Uh, and this was before I was using Elm format. I'm not even, uh, I'm sure it was around, but I wasn't using I, it. I don't think it was um, at that point. I think that was pre Elm format. That's amazing. I might be wrong. Cause that, might be wrong. that's such like, for me, that's like such a fundamental tool <laughs> with Elm. Yeah, really um, like there was a time before. Um, and so there wasn't this kind of like formatting clue mm-hmm. of like, Hey, you're probably, ugh, you know, not, you shouldn't go down that road. Um, and so, uh, so backwards, backwards arrows, doing it in pipelines, um, and uh, and some of the code was pretty um, just bigger than than it it should have been, I suppose. Um, the thing that I did get right from the very beginning, um, actually, I'm not even sure if I got it right from the very beginning, but there was this question of using springs. Um, so springs was kind of like the first concept I learned from the animation realm uh, as like kind of an alternate way of animating. So, you know, initially you have this easing function. It goes from zero to one. You know, like you give it a number from zero to one and it gives you a number from zero to one. And then sort of it, you can fake a bouncing thing or like a squiggly thing or what have you. But springs is more, you know, you model some physics using Hooke's law and, um, and, you're able to from springs you're able to get uh, smooth interruptions right so like if something's like in route to wherever it's going and you're like actually go over here it's like you know it puts on the brakes and like then goes over there um and that turns out to be it's harder it's harder to do that nicely with easings in fact you you know, it would just stop and then turn around. And there's sort of this other issue of like, if you're halfway to your destination and you interrupt with an easing, um, and you go back, um, you can see that the zero to one is like compressed now, um, because it's a shorter distance. So it's actually a slightly different animation. So there's just, um, yeah, things that sort of, um, springs make kind of nice. Um, so, uh, so and you say you don't know if it was there from the beginning. Do you remember like a time I almost had to were... like go go and check. Um I don't want this to be a rabbit hole, but <laughs> Well the point um, the point being like it sounds like there was a concept you started out with, which was like maybe transitions are gonna be great. Like I'll just model this thing around animation and mm-hmm. have transitions in there, but then at some point you realize that that wasn't going to achieve the effect you wanted and had to make yeah. a major change about the thought of the structure of the animation, right? Right, right. So, um, so some of the big benefits that I wanted was like, okay, you know, you have some type checking around the actual inline style attribute you're you're using. Um, you have something that's always interruptible, um, which can make like some really nice animations. Um, and th- those were really the kind of the two big, uh, like, main gets in the beginning. And so what happened there is I published it on Elm Discuss and Max actually showed up and he's like, Hey, uh, you're, uh, using the wrong arrow. <laughs> he was oh, a lot nice. nicer. Like, like okay. he, he, he was, yeah, he was nice. Um, 
but you know, he's like, oh yeah, we use the right arrow for doing pipelines. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay, uh, sure. Um, and of course, now it it like totally makes sense because like, okay, these have not only a um, there's a formatting concept and there's like kind of like a higher level like semantic concept around the arrows, right? So, so I'm like, okay, so I flip the arrows. And there was also a decision I made um, uh, at some point in here. I'm like, okay, if your animation is this pipeline, you're describing a series of steps. Um, you know, I've seen this word being. This is going to sound like everyone. Like I'm, I'm going to hear everyone cringe, but um, uh, I, I see this word being used kind of everywhere. Um, and so I'll just use this word to kind of chain these steps because it really works. And the word, it's not just one word, but it's, and then, so I'll say like, you do this and then this, and then this. Okay. And, um, and for people who maybe aren't familiar with Elm and then is actually a, a pretty specific, um, concept that shows up. And I was not, I was sort of just commandeering this language because it right. sounded like English and, but it, it didn't represent that concept. So um, you were maybe you were giving people the impression that this that this effect you were building up was monadic and that you could like yeah. change <laughs> effects and they were lazy and things. So that I think that might be an unfortunate side effect of using the term and then consistently. Well, it just as, mud, it muddy like so and then as a as a name for bind right is right really nice. And what yeah. I was doing, and I didn't know that <laughs> uh, I was doing this, but I was muddying the water for right. that word, for that niceness of it. I was making it confusing. Yeah. Um, or just like people would be like, oh, yeah, you know, Elm, we have and then. And you sort of lose the concept behind it. It's like, oh, well. Or, or expect then <laughs> that I should be able to, to use the transitions in a way yeah. that I, I can't actually. Yeah, depending on like what area you're coming from. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, for sure. So, uh, so the, the first two versions, um, were really about understanding what are, uh, the standards in the Elm community. Um, and the only way I was able to do that was actually getting insight from other Elm people and, you know, and people, some people were using it and I was, I was super happy. And, you know, I had this project that was sort of out there. It was sort of my first open source thing that people, um, were sort of aware of. Um, and then, uh, I submitted a talk to ElmConf, the very first ElmConf, and it got accepted for, for, uh, and it was to talk about animation. So I was like, oh man, this is so cool. And as soon as I got kind of accepted, um, I get a message on Twitter, like a private, uh, a direct message, um, from Evan saying, um, <laughs> Uh, saying, hey, you know, I saw your animation library. I finally had a chance to check it out. It's so cool you were able to do this. Um, this is great. Your code looks a little weird. Can we, uh, like, jump on a video call and, and um, you know, talk about it? Um, and I was like, like, wow, you know, like <laughs> the guy who created the language just, you know, messaged me. Uh, this is so cool. Did that make you um, nervous at all? Oh, totally. Yeah. I was <laughs> like, Oh boy, here we go. Um, or I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I was, I was enthusiastic, but didn't really know what to expect. Um, and so we got on a call and, um, he said, uh, and it was a very cool kind of experience. We, you know, he kind of like sketched it out, sketched out what he was thinking. 
Um, and kind of, we were talking about my API and he's like, you know, he told me, he, he's like, I strongly object to, you know, using, and then in this like situation, um, which makes total sense. Um, and we settled, uh, and before I remember like actually, um, juggling this other decision of like, okay, is animation like a pipeline? Like are the like steps you're describing like a pipeline or is it just a list of steps, right? And list of steps turns out to be a lot simpler. <laughs> and there's Does also it fit some the sort model of, better. Yeah, well, it just felt like the syntax was a lot nicer. Um, making that actually work was easy. You know, you just have a function that takes a list, like that creates an animation, and it takes a list of steps, right? Right. So that's that's nice. You don't have to have all these. Um, you don't have to configure it the other way, right? And um, but p- like parsing the difference between those two was actually a, a, a challenge in the beginning. Um, now I've sort of embraced, uh, you know, lists as uh, a really nice interface tool. Um, so it's definitely my default. Uh, I don't default to pipelines. Um, and I, th- I think there's just sort of like a certain amount of uh, context for both of those things, you know. Um, a pipeline is like a chain of operations happening, and that describing it that way, it's like, oh, but an animation is just, you know, a uh, chain of operations. It's like, well, but is it? You're not really, you don't really need that pattern. You know, you can just have like a list of steps, and that's fine. Right. Because um, one thing with the chain of operations is that you want the next step to maybe vary depending upon the results of the first step. And that's probably not how you were doing animation. Right. And so, right. And so another thing, uh, and this actually turns out to show up later too, is um, the idea of overriding things, right? So yeah, if you depend on, so uh, one of the things that uh, the earlier version of the library had was relative animations, so you could say, you know, from where you are, go five pixels to the right, um, yeah. or what have you. And it turns out that that can lead to it, it's just you're there's a lot more context to understand how an animation works. And so, kind of moving towards more absolute or or concrete um, forms turned out to be a pretty big design win. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Well, then tell me, uh, at this point in this library, how did you know when it kind of felt like it had arrived and it was time to move on to something else and let it be? Um, well, I, you know, I had a, a due date. Um, so the due date was the talk that I gave. Um, and I think I mentioned in the talk, like, the night before I, I had released version 3.0. Um, oh, the and night I, before. I turned, that, I turned that into kind of, yeah, the night before. Okay, um, wow. I did that again with style elements, actually. Um, and I've sort of made a decision not to do that in the future, <laughs> um, to like not, <laughs> I mean, have other ways to encourage urgency or whatever, but, um, but, uh, yeah. So as far as like knowing when it's done, it's hard to know when it's done. Cause it's, it's sort of never going to feel done. Um, I think one of the ways to do that, do it now that I really pay attention to is just reducing uh, what you're actually doing and you fulfill on the vision of what you're actually doing. Um, can you explain that a little more? So reducing what you're actually doing. Yeah. You mean so, like reduce um, the 
number it's of really things tempting when you're yeah so <laughs> like probably could be said better could be reduced better um so <laughs> um uh so the real trick is is how many things do you do you give your user this is actually i think i tended towards in the very beginning to you would talk to people or about animation or about whatever domain you're talking about and they would um you can say like, oh, I want to do it like this, or I want to do it like this. And you sort of feel obligated or something to sort of support every use case. Um, and so you're just sort of adding features all the time to make sure that sort of every way to slice your library is is nice. And sort of I've moved from that to, um, you know, let's make some decisions and not allow developers to do certain things <laughs> and just allow them to do, you know, the one thing really, really well. And let's use as few words as we can to actually do that well. And we don't want to compromise readability and everything. Um, but, um, uh, it's interesting in the evolution of style elements. Um, a lot of the stuff is like removing features. Um, as opposed to like, okay, we're stacking them, you know, more and more because every new feature kind of adds another layer of uh, complexity of how does it interact with all the other existing things. Yeah. Um, so in order to keep the library really accessible and actually, you know, make it more powerful, you know, you, um, you need to really figure out what your, your true primitives are, you know, like, um, an example of something that's, uh, going away in, version five of style elements of style elements is the, so style elements already reduces or restricts what units you can use. Um, there's a strong default, um, that most properties only allow you to set pixels and you can still like kind of modify those pixels, but you have to use, essentially you just use an Elm function, you you know, to create another pixel value. Right. But, um, but re- reducing the number of units you have to use actually allows you to think about your design a lot clearer because everything is sort of talking in the same units. You know, um, if you're talking in different units, you can, you know, wind up having a huge problem. Yeah. Um, and it, it muddies your thinking. Um, so, uh, and I thought I had reduced the units like a lot. <laughs> um, so one place where you can have multiple units is for widths and heights. Um, and currently you can have pixels, you can have what's called fill, uh, which basically just sort of fills the, the available space. Um, you can have content. So you say like, you know, width, you know, the content. Um, so it has the width of its contents. Um, and then, uh, percent, uh, you say like percent, 50% or whatever. Now what's interesting is that percent turns out to be sort of totally unnecessary. Um, and leads people to solutions that may not be the best. So, um, and what I say the best is, is like where they're overflowing their parent container accidentally. Um, that never happens in CSS. (laughs) Right. Um, and so realizing it's like, okay. And if people really want some sort of percentage idea, um, the concept of fill actually can, um, can substitute there. So it's like, okay, we can just like take that, take out that word and we can do everything we would want to do. And we eliminate some, um, some error cases that are unexpected. Um, so that's really cool. And I want to interject for a second and say mm-hmm. that over the weekend we were having a family conversation and my father-in-law, who's a lawyer was coming in and talking about, uh, 
a book he was reading about telling nonfiction stories. Mm-hmm. And the book he was reading talked about the importance of selecting the facts that you choose to put in your storytelling. Yeah. Because a good story is not necessarily a story that is full of all the facts. Um, right. Because there are too many facts that exist in the world to make a clear picture or to make a clear message. So if you're writing a story, even a nonfiction story about some kind of, you know, like my day at the office or something, and you, the person comes into the office and you don't you don't list all the details of like where the, all of the chairs were on the floor and like what color the floor was and all right. these things. Because even though they're all facts, they are, they are muddying, muddying up the story. So he was thinking about and talking to us about how this could relate to his work as a lawyer. And I was thinking about how that relates to API design, especially and, and programming, Definitely. because there's so so much importance in uh, in what you leave out versus what you put in, and what kind of story that tells. So I, I've really been thinking about this uh, um, with regards to style elements, but it's something that I've become clearer on, um, or, or just aware of, is um, you know if you put a feature in your library, uh, someone's going to use it. <laughs> And not only that, but someone's probably going to, it's going to be the first thing they reach for. So, um, I recently had a discussion with, uh, some people on the style elements, uh, Slack channel. Um, and so in style elements there, there's a, a really great property. So it, it style elements, just to give a brief intro is like, uh, it doesn't like you can do your layout and your styling without having to worry about the CSS. It compiles to like CSS and some HTML. Um, but we have a new language to sort of talk about design and this language is sort of, uh, well, in my mind, you know, a lot closer to what I think of as the actual design language of layout. Um, so one of their things is that, uh, you're still building up this sort of, you know, this tree, but this tree has, uh, you know, basically explicit layout built into it. So the node name of a given, you know, node, uh, defines its layout. So you can have a row of stuff. Um, and you imagine, you can imagine what a row looks like. Um, if you wanted just some text, you have, you know, text, whatever. So you could have a row of text elements. Um, you could have essentially there's the generic element, which is sort of like a div, but, uh, the key, uh, differentiator here is that in, in L, which is what this thing is called in style elements, uh, can only have one child, as opposed to a div can have many ch- children. And the reason for that is because if an element has one child, then you know uh, it's still an explicit idea of layout. The one child is just going to be directly inside of that one element. Um, so one of the properties we have is spacing. Um, so the idea of spacing is, so you have a row and you say on this row, um, you know, spacing 20 and then the three, uh, or the, the elements inside of that row are going to be spaced 20 pixels apart. That's pretty cool. Um, so kind of one of these questions that shows up is, uh, you know, so you have this row of, you know, five things or whatever, and they're 20 pixels apart, but you know, between, uh, item, you know, one and two, I'd really like the spacing to be like five pixels apart. Um, and so I was thinking like, okay, well, technically I could just create a new element called spacer. And so the idea would be is that you'd have a row 
it would have spacing 20. And then in the children, you have your first element. Then directly after that first element, you'd have something called a spacer. And that would like reset the spacing between those two elements. Right. Right. Um, and I thought this was like a super elegant <laughs> uh, solution. And uh, I was like, oh, this is, this is nice for this edge case, you know, where people are doing it. And somehow it came up on the, st- on the Slack and people were, people were like, this makes no sense. Why, why is this happening this way? Um, and uh, they started like bringing up examples of like, and how it really hit me was like, well, what if people reach for this weird spacer element before reaching for this really nice spacing attribute? Right. Um, and what if they're just using these spacers everywhere and I'm like, is that, is that good? I'm like, well, I sort of conceived of it as like this, you know, temporary override, um, or like, you know, really it's like, this is the last thing you should reach for. And I'm like, oh man, but in the world where someone's just using this, you know, and, and you know, that, that would not be great. It's like, well, how do you s- solve this? It's like, well, what you can do is actually just put those first two elements, those first two elements that should be spaced differently. You put them in a row inside of the first row. There you go. And, and you have, you say the spacing is five and, um, and I don't think we think about like thinking those, that that's still something they have to learn. These sort of embedded layouts, um, like a column within a column, um, just a thinking, a new way of thinking. Yeah. It's a, it's adjustment of thinking, but it's actually, uh, once you start thinking that way, um, it's really easy to look at any style elements, um, website and translate back to what the actual code would look like. So it's sort of like this transparency of code and, and layout, uh, which turns out to be pretty nice. So, so it's interesting to see sort of these things, um, uh, kind of take place. And it really kind of made me realize that in a library, um, and I'm probably in a interesting scenario dealing with CSS, Right, so libraries that don't deal with CSS or don't deal with um, these things, they're, they're, like my thought might be different, but definitely um, with uh, style elements, realizing that a, a lot of what I'm doing is actually taking CSS, uh, where you can override everything at any point, um, and making it so that you you have one way to be explicit, and that sort of means reducing the number of overrides to a bare minimum, if not zero. Um, Cause what an override is, is essentially, you know, you're, you're saying there's multiple places uh, that can affect one effect. Right. And so yeah. there's all of a sudden this sort of path is there's this journey you have to go on. If you, if you need to debug something, if something's going wrong, and if you allow one override, well, can you override the override? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, what about overriding the override the override? You know, it's, you know, and in and, and CSS, you definitely run into that. That's the idea of Cascade, right? Like, um, but uh, even just one override can be, can be potentially problematic. So, um, yeah. So simplicity in the feature set, releasing the fewest kind of the MVP, the minimum viable package, you might say, is probably a great idea to start out with so that you don't have to, well, yeah, you can it's handle tough. less complexity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's tough because this is, 
uh, it's hard to get perspective on this. Um, my perspective on style elements has changed drastically, even since it was uh, released in the version that people actually use, right? Yeah. Um, and I, my perspective has changed because I see people's what challenges they do run into with the library. Um, and so I have just a lot of perspective because I have a lot of use cases. I'm like, okay, people are using it, you know, this way or like, oh, that feature that I put in there, um, people are reaching for it way too often. Um, does it actually need to be there? Uh, that's a good question, you know? Um, so it sounds like the packages when they're initially released should probably released with the intention of experimentation that like this will, this will change radically over the next bit. Probably I think, get it I right think it's reasonable to, to do that. I mean, um, you know, you'll kind of see. I mean, you go in, really understand your domain. Like, there's a lot of research before you even get there, right? Uh, like, un- understand your domain, understand uh, the context of the language, you know, Elm. So, like, what are, what are the standard ways of doing things in Elm? And if you have those two things and you're like, okay, and now I want to approach this problem and really, you want to say, like, I want to approach it in, in this way, which people aren't really doing. Um, but even finding, like, design vision for style elements, I mean, it took a very long time for me. I knew, so the, the very beginning of style elements, the design vision was, I want style that doesn't break. And specifically, I didn't care too much about CSS that didn't break, because we already had that, right? Elm CSS is great. Right. Yeah. But I wanted style that didn't break. Um, the end where I could refactor page. something as easily as Elm, uh, yeah. refactor my layout as easily as Elm, and and just be happy all the time. <laughs> um, Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Right. Uh, but it took me a really long time to figure out. Like, okay, well, layout is the source of like all these problems, and um, and you know what is sort of an error in layout and a lot of it was just like spooky action as at a distance right we have a lot of this in styling um and again it's this cascading part uh this overriding um and so if we just reduce that by a lot and reduce the number of kind of tensions within the library so an example like why is spacing so cool well spacing is cool because actually what it is is it's a substitute for margin um meaning there is no concept of margin in style elements. Um, it's a compile target. Margin is a compile target, but you can't specify it directly. You can specify padding, but not margin. So the problem there is that they fight with each other. Um, right. You know, like, basically it's like there are two things setting effectively the same property, and so who wins? Um, you know, it depends on the context in normal CSS. <laughs> Uh, but in style elements, you just you just know. Like you can look at a layout and be like, oh yeah, okay, I can like write the code in my head for this layout without you know, um, without going nuts. So, well, interesting. That makes sense. So uh, we are almost out of time. Uh, yeah. Before we wrap up, though, I have one more question, and then we have some picks and stuff. So the question I want to ask is between Elm style animation. And mm-hmm. style elements, the two different yeah. libraries. What from your ex- from your first experience developing the first library? Mm-hmm. What lessons did you carry with you and uh, apply 
to be able to approach the design of the second library differently. Kind of just an abstract, not specifically like, oh, I learned this about style from the first and that to the second, but in general yeah, yeah, yeah. for yeah, API design, what did you carry with you? Um, so I learned the importance of learning your domain uh, better. If I were to like redo Elm style animation, I would have really learned about animators. <laughs> okay. um, you know, not about like how are other like animation libraries animating stuff. And that's, I mean, that's important too, but how do animators talk about stuff? Um, okay. and that translated into style elements, like how do designers talk about their designs? So immediately you have to get out of your bubble. Um, and you know, I've seen this with Teresa and, and Elm plot, right. Um, where her journey as, as far as like, I've heard, um, I think I've heard her say this, um, you know, was kind of on this journey to like figure out like what, um, what's a good plot, <laughs> you know, like let's learn from like, um, Tufty, um, and, uh, his whole like area of research around sort of this thing. And then let's just take that research and, and do, do that. Right. So you got to kind of get out of your bubble to like learn the domain. Um, I think something, there's one thing I want to mention just because uh, I know we're running out of time, but uh, this is something that I've really embraced going from style elements three to style elements. Uh, well, five is where this is going to really hit, but really realizing that uh, building in a learning path and pedagogy can be, is just like massive. Hmm. Um, Elm does this really well, right? You know, you can, uh, if you want to display some text, you just, you know, just say like main equals text, whatever. Or if you want to make it interactive, you, you know, there's a step to do that. So at every point there is both an incentive and like a nice stepping stone to like the next thing. Um, you can take that. Like I would recommend people if they're at this level and like, um, or, you know, they just want to learn more about API design or whatever. Um, check out, uh, Richard's talk on, um, teaching Elm. And then, like, invert it and say, like, how could I make a library that could be taught like that? Oh, that's um, cool. I like that idea. Where people had, like, stepping stones, where there were, like, obvious ways. Uh, actually, when I was doing research for this podcast, I was really thinking, like, what would be what I would recommend as far as a resource people could read to, like, design a good API? And the thing, <laughs> the thing that came to mind... Um, and, you know, who knows, but uh, just because I've been thinking about pedagogy all the time is the thing that came to mind is if you give a mouse a cookie, actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> classic, so the first thing you would do with your library is like state the design vision. Why is this different than other stuff? You'd give them the cookie, like some libraries, they're not, you know, they don't give the cookie immediately. Right. Um, so, and I've gotten better at style elements with this, but, uh, it's hard. It's hard to sometimes frame, you know, the advantages, but then you got to see like, what is the journey you're taking them on? And at every step, um, I mean, Richard mentions this, or, you know, this is a common concept in like teaching is like student will be able to right? um, use your stories for students. In an, and in yeah. So you want to build that chain that people can do and you don't want to do weird things with that chain where, uh, you know, you give a mouse a cookie and 
there's a glass of, you know, milk, but it's actually poisoned right next to him. <laughs> right. It's like, and then they reach for it and you're like, Oh, you should, you really shouldn't have, you shouldn't have gone there. That, that, that's reserved for like a different use case. <laughs> Not that milk. <laughs> or like, you know, you tell a user that there's a cookie if they go over this mountain and cross this river and, and then they get there and it's not actually a cookie. It's a muffin. You know, it's just like, like just, just thinking about like, okay, how can I make the, these steps like really nice for someone to use where there's an obvious benefit at, at every point? Um, and how could I use words that work with both the community and, um, and capture like the, the, um, hopefully the idea behind what I'm trying to do. Oh, I like that so. a lot. That's fantastic. What a great closing note. <laughs> Wish I had closing notes that were that powerful all the time. All right, Matt, you're invited on the show every episode in the future. And nice. I will be excusing myself. No, <laughs> Sorry, everybody, you're still stuck with me. Um, but let's move on to the picks section and, yeah. or the picks or recommendations. Um, Matt, do you have any prepared? I do. Uh, okay, let's have them. I have two. Um, one of them is another podcast. I'm sorry. What? Um, I know, right? I know. I mean, I only listen to one po- podcast. It's your podcast. I'm sorry, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's the Base CS co- podcast. Base and CS. Yeah. Check it out. It's based on these blog articles that Vadehi Joshi, I hope I'm saying that right, um, she does. It's just awesome. Um, especially like, so my background is not in computer science. Uh, it's in biology. <laughs> Who knew? Um, so just the way they're kind of approaching, like teaching cool, very cool, like computer science concepts, um, is really nice. Um, That's super cool. And the other pick right now. is if you're interested in animation and you want to learn more about animation, specifically around, uh, animation and SVG, uh, just go watch, listen to everything that Sarah Drasner has ever done. Okay. So. Sarah Drasner's assorted works. Yes. That's way cool. Is there like one link I should put there for Sarah's stuff? Or do you know if she has oh, a site? Oh, yeah. Uh, what was it? Um, she had a talk recently that was just really cool. That covered a lot of web animation stuff. Yeah, so the talk is called SVG Can Do That. Cool. To be looked up, to be learned. So, that's great. Thank you for those picks, Matt. And I'll wrap up with a couple, unless you had... Unless, did you have any more? I think that's it. Okay. Well, then my picks are coming in from 6 o'clock this morning when I was looking at the Elm Announcements channel in Slack. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's this very cool Medium post by Charlie Coster, or Charlie Coaster. I don't know how to say pronounce the last name correctly. But it's Advanced Types in Elm phantom types. He's done a whole series of, of advanced types in Elm posts. This one is particularly cool. This talks about how to take basic types and, well, when we have a lot of basic types in our program, some of our type checking can become loose where maybe you have string IDs everywhere uh, and you really wish that the compiler would help you better so that you don't pass like um, you know, a taco ID into like a pizza ID slot kind of thing. So this is, oh, that's what this post is, is destroyed. About. Yeah. It's just, uh, you don't want taco pizza. Actually taco pizza sounds really, <laughs> that sounds cool. amazing. Yeah. We'll, we'll leave that <laughs> so, for a few trips. <laughs> yeah, let's just do that. So there's that one, which I'm going to paste into the show notes right now. There's the, that 
blog post. And then to go along with it, there's also this Elm package by our Hardy Jones. I say our Hardy Jones because we had an episode with Hardy. It's the one where I sounded like a robot the whole time. Um, oh, yeah. This package from Hardy Jones called Elm Tagged. And I think that Elias or Elias, I don't actually know how to pronounce his name either in Slack. I, I don't uh, either, but he's great. In the chat. <laughs> yeah, so helpful. Thanks, Elias, Elias, Elias. Um, and this package is way cool because it abstracts that concept of tagging a basic type in the type system. And it lets you uh, have, uh, well, it, it genericizes operations over the values in those types. So you don't have to re-implement, for example, like comparison operators or mapping in between um, different types and values. So that's that's pretty neat too. So you can level up your uh, type safety by using the tagged library and by following the phantom types pattern that Charlie pasted in. Now, the uh, the what's the word I'm looking for? The caveat here is that at the end of the article, Charlie says, "No, I haven't really used this that much, and I don't really see other people using it that much." And I will say that I have avoided using this pattern in the past because of the difficulty. Because I've I've gone and said like, you know, our, it would be nice to have more type safety here. But it's a pain, so I'm not going to do it. And so, I'll just say that I don't I don't know whether this is um, like a super pattern that should be used all the time, just because I haven't done it because of the pain involved. So I'm hoping that maybe Jones's library, uh, the Hardy's library, will help me to make it a little easier and see if this is going to be a useful pattern in making my code more robust. Yeah, I, th- I think the pattern is, and a lot of these patterns, like uh, opaque types and whatnot, they are really powerful tools for package writers. Um, like if you're writing a package, definitely learn these patterns because you'll be able to make your library just, you kind of get a lot of safety without having to write a lot of code. You just do some sort of, uh, I don't want to say type magic because, you know, that maybe, but sure, type magic. <laughs> you get the guarantee from the type without having to like write a bunch of code. Yeah, it may be magic or it may just be like new skills, like your type level yeah, food there we go. has been leveled up, right? Like, if it's yes. magic, that's like, I have no idea what's going on. To the... Right, right. But in this case, we just know that we're making a type that the compiler then has access to. I feel yes. like, for me, magic, type-level magic is more like Haskell's servant library that's like a whole uh, other sure. universe <laughs> of programming. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, I'm not writing code, I'm only writing types. And it's like, yes, yeah. don't ask questions. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then I go home and feel uh, like I'm not a cool enough person. But you are a cool enough person. Just because I don't like level <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Um, but yes, very cool. Um, and I think that learning to use the type system for uh, robustness in programming is probably a, uh, a very worthwhile skill. Yeah, it can also aid. I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to make one point about type stuff. Um, Great, we have 15 it, seconds. Go ahead. Okay, 15 seconds. Uh, we can. Uh, <laughs> Oh man, now I'm on the spot. Um, <laughs> so it, uh, you can use these types actually to in- help pedagogy, right? So like in an- the animation library, the standard like animation thing, like model, the state you have to like store in your model, um, it just says like it's the animation type. But what's interesting is that's actually uh, kind of, it's hidden from you, but that's actually behind the scenes. It's an animation state that can't send messages, Right. So people just say like, oh, I can have this like animation. I can just they can start animating pretty quickly. Well, what they find probably later on is there's this really good tool of like, I want to be able to send a message to my update statement halfway through this animation. 
Well, you can do that. You just ha actually have to import animation.messenger, use that type in your type signature, which has a variable message at the end, which is the type that you, of message you can send. And then all of a sudden, like, they can just send messages. They just have to change the type uh, signature. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. So you can, you can use these things to your advantage to not only provide guarantees, but to uh, like, uh, create a nice learning path. I agree. I think that's amazing. And we can all learn to use uh, the type system a little bit better. And I also want to apologize because I didn't mean to sound disparaging of the Haskell servant library. Super cool. Uh, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. But, I didn't mean you know, to sound Yeah, bad. they use a lot of type level logic. It's great. There we go. Let's all level up. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for coming to join me today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Anytime. And uh, happy holidays to everyone who has holidays. Definitely. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>